You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, I feel like in each of the new episodes of this show that we have recorded in 2023, I have started the show by talking about what a weird start it has been to the year in MMA. And you know what? It kind of just keeps getting weirder. This past week, we had not only a last-minute change to the scheduled fight night main event and one where the late replacement actually won, by the way, But the UFC heavyweight champion has departed the company. All of which leads me to say, Ben, folks, what the fuck is going on? I feel like, is it maybe just going to be that kind of year? Yeah. Are we going to get all the way nuts this year? Feels like maybe we are. Well, it's a long time coming. I would have thought, just considering how things have gone during the first three decades of this sport in America that we had already gone all the way nuts, but maybe not. Maybe that was all just preamble. It was just a precursor to the shit that 2023 has planned for us. Crazy to think that as nuts as this sport has gotten, there's still room to get nuttier. Yeah. And you know what else is crazy to think about is that here we are 16 days into the new year. And the fact that Francis Ngannou has left the UFC via free agency may well turn out to be the biggest news development of the year. That we've already had it. Here we are. Where do we go from here? That's a great damn question. I have no idea. I guess we're going to find out. We're going to be we'll talking. find out together. We're gonna you be- and me, hand in hand. <laughs> That's right. We're going to talk about Over that. Over the cliff like Thelma fucking Louise. Yeah. We're going to talk about that stuff and other stuff coming up on this show. Uh, remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show Drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and your podcast libraries. If you like what we're doing here, don't forget to go check us out over on Patreon. We got content streaming over there all week. Uh, Wednesday's live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursday's doing the damn thing podcast. And we got Friday's power hour, a full extra curated hour of MMA talk from the two hosts you love to love equally. Get down with us. We got a patronage tier for every budget. Head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. We got music this week from our guy, Simeo. He is a longtime listener of the show, co-main event podcast fan, Alfred Larson. He's a Stockholm-based producer. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more at soundcloud.com slash semio. Again, that's S-E-E-M-I-O. If it sounded like I motored through those promos, maybe it's just because we have so much to talk about this week. Yeah. Three rounds, as usual, in the co-main event podcast this week. And round number one, well, he did it. Francis Ngano pieced out the UFC. Why did he do it? What's next for him? And what does it mean now for the UFC? We'll talk about it. And in round number two, after nearly a three-year absence, 
the UFC was suddenly able to book John Jones a fight for the vacant heavyweight title seemingly in a matter of hours after Ngano officially left the company. Now it'll be Jones versus Cyril Gaon in March in Las Vegas. So hooray? Question mark. And in round number three, Sean Strickland went straight from planning his vacation to beating Nasardim Imovov over the weekend. Ain't that some shit? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a, li- a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. They were saying on the broadcast, Imovov. It- it feels sometimes like we've just decided on a new pronunciation every single time, doesn't it? I, like, we're just fucking with us. I feel like this happens frequently where we have a name that I struggle to pronounce, and then I feel like as soon as I get it figured out, then I tune into yeah. the fights, and they got a whole new pronunciation going. Like, they're doing it specifically to fuck with me. Yeah. They, they don't want you to be happy. They don't want you to feel like you can get comfortable. That's what it is. What it they is. want to keep you on your toes yeah. at all times. Oh, you know, I appreciate that. They're making sure I don't get lackadaisical over here. Yeah. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN is one of my favorite products online right now. I use it on all de- my devices, and I know Ben does too. It's super fast and easy enough to use that even I can figure it out, which sometimes is saying something. NordVPN will give you the peace of mind of knowing that all your personal information is safe online, whether you're using the internet at home, traveling, or just running around town and your phone is bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Ben, what's your favorite thing about NordVPN? Well, Chad, you know that I love the way NordVPN just kicks in when I'm traveling around the city, going to various public Wi-Fis. I don't have to worry about it, whether I'm at the Gentleman's Club, whether I'm at the spa, whether I'm at the haberdashery, that NordVPN going to kick in and keep me protected. I know you don't want to worry about anything else when you're at the haberdashery. There's already a lot going on. There's a lot on your mind. You know, you're, you're consumed with haberdashery thoughts. That's correct. We've been telling you guys about the Nord Security Bundle for a little while now. NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go for the big dog, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker. Generate and store strong passwords. Protect your files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy Alan Simpson on Patreon, and it is a long one, but I think it's worth it. He starts out, righty-ho, so three weeks into 2023 and the UFC is in shambles. Then he just, he ticks off a bunch of items here. They just let the most dangerous man on the planet walk away in all caps with the belt. Yeah, I know it's technically theirs, but Big Fran didn't lose it and ran completely roughshod over the entire division, even beating the number one contender with one leg. No heavyweight champion, no light heavyweight champion, middleweight champion is an MMA noob and has a glaring hole in his game, welterweight champion is English, haha, and unpopular, I don't know about that, 
Uh, lightweight champion is about to fight the featherweight champion. Bantamweight champion is injured and unpopular. Flyweight champion is stuck in a loop of continuously fighting the same man. The 53-year-old president was filmed slapping his wife in the face in a nightclub on New Year's Eve. The company hid and did not make any statement about this, and the president won't be punished because he is rich and powerful, and punishing him actually punishes the fighters, you see. The president seems to care more about the white power slap bollocks than the company itself. That could be a tip as to where Alan Simpson is writing from. Uh, (laughs) And then he notes, the first event of the year was headlined by Sean Strickland. My question, gentlemen, does any of this matter? Does anyone care? Uh, You know, I don't agree with all of these assertions. Some of them were were reaching to try to make it sound worse than it is. you you got some good points where you say no heavyweight champion, no light heavyweight champion. Fine. Middleweight champion is an MMA noob and has a glaring hole in his game. How dare you, sir? How dare you? I'm not going to sit here, let you talk to that, that scary ass man, Alex Pereira, that way. After we saw him come in here, beat Israel Adesanya like he did. You start to be reaching for some shit here. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to just picking on individual champions. Uh, I get what you're saying with some of the other stuff, some of the bigger structural issues. Here's what I would say, though, when I turn it around on Alan Simpson for this question is, do we maybe like mess in this sport? Do we maybe like it a little bit when it's a little bit chaotic? Things feel like they're in shambles. Is that maybe make things more interesting for us? Can we admit that about ourselves? It's possible. I, I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the the swipes taken here at Pereira or uh, Aljamain Sterling or Leon Edwards. But I feel like when you see them listed off like this, it is kind of arresting, especially when you talk about the what's happened with Dana White recently, as well as the heavyweight champion now walking away and the light heavyweight title being vacant at least for another couple of weeks here. We have kind of lured ourselves into this sense of security that the UFC, for better or for worse, is this unstoppable juggernaut that frankly kind of runs itself at this point. Now, obviously, that's not to discount the many efforts of the hardworking men and women behind the scenes at the UFC who are responsible for making it run as smoothly as it does from week in to week out. But there is a sense now that the UFC does these 42 events a year for ESPN+. Plus. It gets this upfront guaranteed licensing money from ESPN for its pay-per-views. So it doesn't really matter that the next UFC event is headlined by Jamal Hill versus Glover Tashira and that the co-main is another fight between Davey Figs and Brandon Moreno. And so we get this, we get lured into this sense that like, hey man, everything is fine. It's this well-oiled machine. It does a show every week, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if there are some cracks at some point here in the foundation of this monolith of this goddamn giant skyscraper that is the UFC. Are we so secure in our notion that it is the best MMA organization in the world and always will be that we get lured into this trance of just thinking that it is what it is. And we ignore some of these very basic issues that could at some point, you know, uh, uh, rear their heads up and prove to be an actual problem for the UFC. You know, I'm sure that there's something to that, that maybe we get a little bit set in our thinking about it. But also, I guess the question would be like, how would you foresee any of these cracks in the facade actually affecting A, the UFC's profitability and business model, 
and or B fan interest in a way that would be meaningful either to a UFC competitor or to the UFC itself. Yeah, it it would be hard. And I think the only get to that point when a bunch of other known fighters, popular fighters, dependable fighters start showing up in another organization. At that point, I think you might have a problem on your hands. But they are the UFC is so well ensconced. It does have such a fanatical fan base. It does seem like uh an unstoppable perpetual motion machine at this point that it's awfully hard to imagine anything actually posing a problem, at least to the bottom line, or at least to, you know, the business model that it is, it is pursuing right now, short of like a sweeping judgment in the class action lawsuit or anything like that. It is hard to imagine any real changes. Uh, and some of that gets into, oh, Alan Simpson notes at the end of his email, I didn't want to accidentally leave this off, 2023 has been hilarious so far. So <laughs> it just tells us a little bit where he's coming from. The next question this week is from the great Southern MMA fan, and the subject line says, I'm the juggernaut, bitch, or maybe I'm just the UFC. Here is his email. He writes, I'm a huge sports fan. Football, basketball, ML MLB. I've never seen fans so pro league like MMA fans. If the NBA fucks up, you hear about it from basketball fans. The UFC can shit on your dreams and it's still the fighter's fault. Between Dana White cutting promos for the power slap and a nightclub, duct taping a light heavyweight title fight together, and letting the heavyweight champ ride out, you'd think the UFC would get some heat. Why is there no critical analysis of the UFC's decision making in MMA fans and the media? Thanks, and I'd like uh, for you turd burglars to send me an address. I want to share some Southern kindness with you. So he's offering to send us some gifts. Uh you know what? We we get criticized on this show for being too critical of the UFC and its business model. And we hear from people frequently who think that that's the way we come from. And I would note that there are some people in the media that do criticize the UFC pretty vociferously and consistently. However, and you and I have talked about this before, and this is a good week to bring it up. There is a, is a percentage of the fan base. And I don't, I can't claim to sit here and know how large that percentage is but there is a percentage of the fan base that are just ufc stands and they are out here on social media ride or die all the time for the ufc and if anyone says or does anything that challenges the notion of that greatness and it's uh it's perfect all the time absolute perfection these people just fucking go crazy and it's i've seen a little bit of it in other sports but it seems a very prevalent here yeah it also seems to me and i don't know why this is that sometimes nobody hates mma fighters like mma fans and that is really difficult for me to understand especially when any fighter has any sort of complaints about treatment or pay or anything there's a certain sizable segment of the mma fan base that fucking hates them for it hates them for doing anything other than just showing up whenever they are asked and bleeding on demand people for some reason get really mad about that and it's always weird too to see when it comes down to talks about money because you know sometimes you see in other sports where uh, you know we sign the new pitcher for this baseball team and it's this huge contract and Fans seem sometimes to, uh, I, I think, have a more 
even-handed take on it where they're just like, well, hey, good for him, whatever. It's a crazy amount of money. I can't even fathom that amount of money. All I want is for our team to be good. And they also seem to have a better perception that it's not your fucking money anyway. It's their money. I mean, they're making their money in part off of you paying your money as a fan. But it's not as if they're going to give some of it back to you if it doesn't work out or something. You know, once they got your money, they got it. And so when the UFC is in these contract negotiations with somebody where, like, they want more money, the UFC is willing to pay more money to make this specific fight happen, you would think the fans would be like, hey, look, the UFC, it's... If they are making a ton of money off of people like me, fan the 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 fan interest from people like me, I want them to spend it on the product. I want them to spend it on giving me a cool ass thing to watch instead of just spending it on paying out the owners. That does nothing for you as a fan. You don't get shit out of that. And yet we know at this point, and the, even these people who are who take the UFC side and all these kind of conflicts, they know too that that is what's happening. It's not like the UFC doesn't have the money. It's not like they're just barely holding on, keep keep barely paying the bills. It, it's they are not spending your money to put together a better product because they don't feel like they need to. They feel like you'll buy this shittier product if it comes down to it. Yeah, like you won't stop paying for it and. The same way the, the pay-per-view goes up, like clockwork, every January. And they even, the, it's kind of ridiculous that they even feel they need to offer an explanation at this point. Like, well, you see, it's because the the product and the fan interest is so good. No, you just do it every year. That's why you're doing it. And it hasn't proven to be a detriment yet. So you're going to keep doing it until it does prove that people will stop paying. And I, you would think that fans would just have a little bit more of a sense of like, hey, you should be taking my money and using it to make a better product right. rather than giving me better fights. And they don't. Instead, there's some, there's like a, a weird thing in the DNA of some fight fans where they just want to be like, hell yeah, don't give those fighters shit. Make them keep showing a bunch of crybabies. Make them keep showing up fighting in a cage for my enjoyment. That's weird to me. Yeah, that is really weird. Uh, next question this week comes to us from definitely not Dana White, who writes. Well, okay. Finally, we can stop talking about all of the Dana White drama and get pumped for a John Jones fight. Glad we can move on past my scandal. Oh, I think he made a, he slipped up there. Uh, uh oh. Hopefully in this week's CME, we can talk about some leather exchanging instead. Now, I don't know if this is meant to be a tongue in cheek email, uh, but it does feel like, again, there is a percentage of the sport and fan base that just like can't wait. Just can't wait to turn the page from Dana White beating his wife in public on New Year's Eve. And of course, the person who wants to move on most of all is the UFC president, Dana White, who did appear in front of the media twice this last week to take questions about this incident. Although on Saturday night after the fight night event, he bristled a little bit uh, at questions about whether or not he should face a professional or really personal punishment around this incident. Uh, all of which is to say he seems to be of the opinion that he gets to decide what his punishment is and he has decided uh, that there won't be one. And that's and that should be fine with everyone else. That was really weird. The the stuff that he said to Brett Akamoto, who you could hear trying to very gently push him on some of this stuff at the post-fight press conference. Especially because him saying like, okay, what you were talking about in regards to I have to face my kids after this. I have to be known as the guy who slapped his wife. 
That's personal stuff. What about should there be professional consequences? And Dana White said, there is nothing other than my personal life, which false, obviously, because you're saying this in your capacity as the UFC president, as you sit there at a post-fight press conference, he's like, what else is there? It's like the thing you're doing now. The thing you're doing now is another thing that there is. Also, the thing that you're planning to do with the Dana White Power Slap League. That's another professional thing that you're playing. Like, and his remarks where he's like, I could have left after the two. And it's like, yeah, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about, like, the fact that you are so rich that it wouldn't really put you in the poorhouse if you had to suddenly stop being UFC president at any time. We're talking about, like, do you get held to any standard? that the UFC wants, would want to turn around and hold somebody else to at some point in the future? And your answer is basically no. And really what it comes down to is it's no because you just don't want to. You just would you'd really just prefer not to suffer any consequences. And so unless somebody's going to make them, you're not going to do it. That's really what he's just saying to you. And the rest is just like a word salad meant to obscure that, that he's just like, I would really, really prefer to face zero consequences for my actions. Yeah. And so, therefore, I'm going to do that. You know, I thought Chuck, the, Chuck Mindenhall made a really good point uh, on the Ringer MMA show last week where he said about the only thing that you could think of that could possibly hurt Dana White or that would feel like a punishment to Dana White is if you took away his ability to be the UFC president, even if it was just for a little while. Because it seems like the guy's whole identity is wrapped up in being the UFC president. You could make the argument he doesn't have a lot else going on, right? And so to make it so he couldn't do that anymore actually would be the biggest punishment that you could possibly inflict on the guy. He talks about how he didn't walk away in 2016 when the Fertitta brothers sold the company to Endeavor. And he uses that as uh, a sign of how like a little the job means to him or something, or like he, you know, he doesn't need it anymore. He could have walked away and he didn't, but the very fact that he didn't walk away when he could have, when the, when his friends cashed out and when he in some ways cashed out, uh, that just goes to show you, he didn't know what else to do with himself, man. Like this is the only thing he knows how to do. It's the only thing he's ever done. And if you took it away from him, it seems like it would matter a great deal for him. And in fact, maybe that's one of the reasons why he is so vehemently saying, there shouldn't be any punishment because it would it would be so bad for him if if there was that punishment. You're right, though, to say that he bristled at this one a little bit as if he felt like, hey, I showed up once and talked to you jackasses about this. And that I feel like that was very kind of me to be willing to do that. And for you to want to, like, ask further questions about it at a second press conference. Watch yourself. I, I don't know how much of this I'm going to sit for. You know, which the thing he said where at one point they asked, was there any talk with TBS about just not doing the slap show? Oh, no. No, of course not. We couldn't we would miss that cultural moment. And then we said, well, OK, well, you pushed it back. And he was like, well, we pushed it back because we were supposed to do a big media blitz, which then obviously we couldn't do right then. And it's like, but you pushed it back a week. Does this mean you're still going to do the media blitz? Because it's still... I feel like this story, it took a little while to gain any momentum outside the MMA bubble, and that was strange. And then the story started being about, like, what is going on with some of this media response and the response from companies like Endeavor. You saw the sort of approach from the entertainment side written up in Variety when the the California uh, legislators 
were asking some questions about Endeavor's response to it. And then I see stuff, especially I get stuff sent stuff from like friends and family who are like, oh, I saw this thing from The Atlantic where it's like, here's a weird sports scandal that nobody's talking about. And it's Dana White's face. I can kind of guess what it's going to be. Shit like that starts popping up. And it's like, are you going to run this thing through a certain media ecosystem kind of ringer? And then just when it might be getting ready to lose some steam, you're going to pop up with the slap show because... That could be poor timing, you know. <laughs> I still think they're gonna they're gonna scrub him right out of there on some Stalin propaganda shit as much as they possibly can. But I wonder if like is, does he still go around trying to talk people up about the slap show thing? Like we delayed it a week because we didn't want to do media right after this story broke, but a week is not that long with something like this when the irony is so damn thick. Yeah. All right. This is going to be a quick change of topic here, but we wanted to squeeze this one in before we move on to the rounds. And this one comes for us from Lil Big and Tasty, who writes, Looks like Alex Pereira hit Izzy so hard that it made him proclaim that the old Adesanya must die and apparently get face tattoos, a.k.a. a midlife crisis. Have you seen the tats? What are your opinions? And can y'all recall any fighters taking drastic measures in in order to restore confidence in their next fight? Did you see the face tattoo? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I glanced at it. I saw the face tattoo enough to literally just see it, but I didn't investigate any further to find out uh, what the face tattoo means. Although I would say Lil Big and Tasty seems to make the valid point here that we have seen different versions of this from other fighters before. In fact, it is somewhat of an MMA cliche, in fact, after fighters experience a certain amount of adversity to be like oh well that was the old me and now it's the new me and i'm built different and i got all these new approaches and i got a new strength coach and now i do a bench press with chains over the bar and all this different stuff uh and then eventually after that doesn't work years later then they proclaim it's time to bring back the old me i gotta go back to basics and do the thing that was working for me in the beginning uh, and I will i will be honest with you it hurts me a little bit in my heart to maybe see this happen to israel adesanya well, for one thing, it is interesting to be like the face tattoo is the fighter's midlife crisis. Isn't it strange how we culturally, the the opinions on face tattoos changed pretty rapidly. Because remember when Mike Tyson got one and it was, oh lord, he's lost his damn mind. Mike Tyson is completely insane. He's got a face tattoo. And now getting a face tattoo is just, something you do on as part of your rap and or influencing career you know it's it's not that huge it's like oh he also got a face tattoo okay cool guess he's doing that now it it really shifted pretty rapidly there but also doesn't it make sense for somebody like Israel Adesanya that it you'd you might have a hard time coming to grips with this new reality especially Given the exact circumstances where you're the best middleweight in the world, you're you're holding it down as champion there. It's got to be a big piece of your self-perception, uh, the story you tell yourself about what you're doing. And then here comes this guy yeah. who beats you in kickboxing. Same guy. And then same guy. He's going to beat you in MMA, take your title there. What do you tell yourself then? Do you tell yourself, this guy just got my number? Yeah. No, you can't do that. You got to tell yourself something. Like, hey, you got to tell yourself 
This was a necessary part of my personal growth. I had to lose this fight so that I could be forced to change and become better. And uh, like a phoenix, I will rise from the ashes. Like you got to tell yourself some version of that story, probably. And honestly, Israel Adesanya is one of the better fighters when it comes to how he handles a loss and not getting too ridiculous about it, but keeping it in perspective, being able to talk about it. Like, but you got to tell yourself something there. Yeah. And so maybe it doesn't surprise me that he tells himself like, okay, this is just part of like me metamorphosizing into the next stage of who I am going to be and the next stage of my career. And obviously it involves a face tattoo. Yeah. Because I didn't have one before, so now I got one. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I think that uh, we also maybe overlook the mental anguish that must be involved in it being the same guy. Yeah. Right? That, like, this is a little bit different than, like, John Jones beating Daniel Cormier. Right? Like, that's emotionally difficult. That there's just this one guy you can't really beat. And, like, he keeps beating you. Like, that's hard. And we saw Daniel Cormier deal with the emotional fallout from that. It's a little bit different than, you know, Randy Couture being at home on the couch and finding out that Tim Sylvia is the UFC heavyweight champion and being like, oh, you know what? No, I actually will come back and go up to heavyweight and reclaim the heavyweight championship because it's a guy I know I can beat. That's got to be hard for Big Tim to take, too. Uh, And frankly, GSP kind of did the same thing to Michael Bisping, which, again, a little bit hard to deal with. But this is the same guy, man. This is the same guy following you from one sport to another and beating you again. That's like you go to a different school to get away from a bully and he transfers, too, just to be like, nope. I'm going to, I'm going to keep, you know, stealing your lunch money and putting your head in the toilet. Like I'm, it doesn't matter where you go. I'm still going to be here for a guy. That's gotta be hard, man. That's gotta be hard to take. Yeah. And so you show up with a face tattoo. Yeah. Now what? And get the face tattoo change the game. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the show in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, as we mentioned before, UFC president Dana White appeared in front of the media after Saturday's UFC fight night event to confirm that after a year-long contract negotiation, heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou has left the company to pursue other opportunities outside the UFC. Or, as Dana White put it, he was quote-unquote released because he quote-unquote doesn't want to compete at this level. To which I say... (laughs) LOL, bro. Francis Ngannou finished his UFC career on a six-fight win streak, including wins over Stipe Miocic, Cain Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos, Curtis Blades, The Biggie Boy, and, of course, Cyril Gaon. As it was noted earlier in an email, he did it on one leg. To say that Ngannou left the UFC after he's been very public 
and very outspoken about his actual real thoughts throughout this process to say that he left for any other reason than he knows he can make more money elsewhere. That is a lie. That is an obvious lie. That is a bald faced lie from the UFC president. But I guess it's one we are not surprised to see him make because it is very much in his playbook of how to deal with fighters that want more money or who do this and leave the company. Yeah, it is exactly the playbook. You could have predicted that this this would be the response. It's especially interesting, though, to hear stuff like we released him from his contract because if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. Man, he spent the last year waiting out the contract. The idea that, hey, we got the sense he didn't want to be here. And so we said, good luck to you, sir. Like, no, you could have done that a lot sooner if that was really what you wanted to do. To to try to portray this as like, okay, hey, you know what? We didn't like what we were hearing from the guy. Seems like he didn't want to fight at this level. Seems like you don't want to be here. You don't, you don't enjoy our company. Fine. Get out of here. Go somewhere else. And it's like, no, man. You released him from his contract because you had to. Because you got to the point where you couldn't get him to agree to a new contract and the old one is running out. So that's what it was. You want to try to put that different spin on it. And also the the spin that I think Francis doesn't want to take risks at this point. Whereas on his side, what we've heard Francis Ngannou say is the UFC offers you a one-sided contract that obligates you to a lot of stuff and obligates them to very little. And you don't have any guarantees in that contract. And this is some. This is not the first time we've heard somebody make that point. Remember when Jonathan Snowden did that story for Bleacher Report where he went through point by point a UFC contract with like you'd hear from the UFC side, and then you'd hear from a you know an employment law professor, uh, experts in the field, and the people from outside the MMA bubble were sort of shocked at how one-sided the UFC contracts are. That's not exactly news. The UFC can cut you from that contract at any time and not have to give you anything from it. You are obligated to stick around in, in that contract for as long as the UFC wants you in it. So when he makes those points, that's all completely valid stuff. And for the UFC to just turn around and be like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he wants, like he really believes in himself. Doesn't believe he can win these fights and make this big money. And also making the point, we offered him a contract that would have made him the highest paid UFC heavyweight ever, even more than Brock Lesnar. It's like, man, Brock Lesnar ain't fought in the UFC for like six years. It, it the money should be going up after all that. Plus, when you look at how much more money the UFC makes now than it did in like 2016. Like, the money should be going up for everybody. The fact that you act like it's only now is somebody finally going to make more than Brock Lesnar money, that's kind of crazy to admit. Yeah, and the fact is, like, he can, Dana White can make that statement as he makes a bunch of these other statements. And frankly, to say that Francis Ngannou left because he doesn't want to compete at this level or he doesn't want to take the risk is so completely ridiculous to say about this guy, Francis fucking Ngannou, your heavyweight champion. Like, we've seen Dana White say this about other people, but it seems so obviously unavoidably untrue to say it about Francis Ngannou that it's it's ridiculous to say it and he can say whatever he wants about what contract that they offered him but the fact is we have no idea what they offered him and we don't know if they offered him that much money for one fight we don't know if they offered him quote-unquote more money than Brock Lesnar over the lifetime of his fight deal we don't know if it was you know a certain amount to show up a certain amount to win like they normally do all that stuff Uh, And so for him to say, first of all, it's weird to say we offered him 
to become the highest paid heavyweight ever in the history of the company. You you frame it that way, and it automatically sounds like there's shit you aren't telling us, right? Like You mean not Conor McGregor. Like, right. Why not just say one of the highest paid athletes in the history of the company? You start saying the highest paid heavyweight ever, and it automatically sounds like you are phrasing it in a way to get us to think something, which is obviously what they want to do. There was one thing, however, that Dana White said that was meaningful to me. And I quote, he said, he feels like he is in a good position where he can fight lesser opponents and make more money. Now think about that for a second. Because if you still even accept the notion that the UFC is the place where the best fight the best, this quote, frankly, should scare the shit out of you. If you are a UFC fan or one of these UFC stands that we talked about a few minutes ago, this quote should scare the shit out of you because what the UFC president is saying here is that the company refused to even pay market value for the number one heavyweight in the world, the guy who was its heavyweight champion. That's unreal. It is borderline insane for Dana White to just admit Hey, Francis Ngannou can make more money fighting somewhere else. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, the the idea of him being risk averse for one thing. It's try to square that with the story we heard from Francis Ngannou's camp from Eric Nixick about how it it was that they ended up agreeing to go into that Cyril Gan fight with a busted knee. Like that's not a risk averse guy. Yeah. You know. Especially when that the whole story about how they said, hey, we're going to see what the doctor says. And if he says yes, then we'll do it. But if he says no, then we won't. And Francis goes in there, meets with the doctor and says, yes, we're fighting. And then afterwards tells him, oh, you know, the doctor said definitely don't do it. But we're doing it anyway. And they do it. And he, and he bets on himself there and he wins. Like, that's not a guy who's scared to take some risks. But you're right. If you are saying essentially like, hey, he can make more money. Or maybe he's just saying Francis Ngannou thinks that he can make more money out there. Let's see if he can or not. I, it, it does tell you something, though, that the USC has this sort of mentality that, like, here's what the contracts look like for everybody. Here's what the pay range looks like. You know, we, we might go a little bit over that for you, but we're not doing anything radically different here. And if you don't like that, then you can walk, essentially. And... I wonder how this sort of stuff plays to somebody who is, you know, maybe a hardish core MMA fan. They're not quite a bitch ass casual, but they don't do a ton of reading on the MMA websites. Maybe don't listen to any MMA podcasts. Maybe don't listen to any or watch any post fight press conferences. They and so when they show up to watch, they you know maybe they hear it like ESPN will report it. Francis Ngannou out of the UFC, new heavyweight title fight. When they show up to watch the next one, are they going? Wait a minute, the, the heavyweight champion was a different guy. Yeah, this this guy's the guy who lose. lost to that guy is what they'll be thinking <laughs> if they watch that fight. It'll be like, oh, this guy we saw him lose last time. Well, and obviously you're usually going to put some kind of spin on it when you do it for the broadcast because that's another 
advantage to having the broadcast be just sort of shown by ESPN, as they reminded us when Dana White, uh, th- this whole thing with him slapping his wife came up. And they were like, we just show this. We don't produce it. And so the UFC kind of gets to tell its version of the story about what happened there. But I do wonder, like, what is go- what goes on in the mind of that person? Because, you know, how we sometimes would like to do who's the lineal champ? Who's the lineal Bellator fight master? Who's the, you know, that kind of stuff. And you go... This guy is the heavyweight champ. The, you know, not the flyweight champ, not the welterweight champ, the goddamn heavyweight champ. At, he took on in a rematch the guy who was who set the record for UFC heavyweight title consecutive title defenses and put him to sleep. Then he beats your your top contender on one leg, uh your interim champ on one leg, and then he's just gone. And then do they give a shit? Do they go, "Wait a minute." I was invested in this idea of this being the best fighting the best. And now you can't really sell me that. Yeah. Well, and whether or not they notice, maybe some of that comes down to what Francis Ngannou does next. And this is as good a time as any, as any I suppose, to segue into that. Like, it's there's kind of never been a better time in recent memory to be a free agent in MMA. You know, maybe you could go back to the Pride era and say there were opportunities then as well. But it seems like... Uh, in combat sports in general, it is ne- there has never been a better time to be a free agent. And Francis Ngannou, frankly, is in a unique position to capitalize on that. Uh, we, you know, over this year, we have talked a lot about what his options may be. I would assume that one or two boxing matches against any heavyweight you've ever heard of before likely pays him more money than if he would have stayed in the UFC. It doesn't matter if he wins or loses. That's not the point. He can go make this money uh, fighting elsewhere. And then, you know, maybe after you do that, you come back and you see which MMA promotion uh, will pony up the most dough. But if I'm Francis Ngannou's managers right now, if I'm Markel Martin, and from what we've told also uh, Ali Abdelaziz having some role at this point, I try super hard to make sure that Francis Ngannou's next fight is not in MMA. Because I think he can make more money somewhere else in boxing, and it feels like a risk, frankly, to go somewhere else and have an MMA fight next. Because if you lose that one, then potentially some of these other opportunities that you want to take advantage of don't exist anymore. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. If you go to the PFL and you lose to a Magomed or something, then people go, well, shit, there it goes. The, the whole thing just went up in smoke. Whereas if you go and you do a boxing match and you lost to Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder or whoever else that you went in a boxing match, people would go, well, we kind of expected you to lose. But we, we enjoyed the spectacle of seeing the UFC heavyweight champ, the baddest man in MMA, basically, take on one of the baddest men in boxing. We, we would get hyped for that. And I also think that one of the things that you would want to sort of show in your first fight out, out or your first move out of UFC contract status is that what you were really looking for was more contract flexibility. That basically you, instead of throwing off the yoke of the UFC just to take on the yoke of the PFL, you were looking to go into business for yourself. Yeah. Because you thought that that business was pretty good, had the potential to be pretty damn good. But also that you just didn't want to be tied down by an MMA promoter who is going to slant the contract entirely in their own favor uh, and leave you with the crumbs. Like, I think that that's the kind of thing that where you would want to show like, Hey, 
what I'm doing now and what I'm able to do now and what maybe other UFC fighters should take note of is I'm able to do a range of different stuff to make me money. That was all all avenues closed off to me when I was in the UFC. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think primarily, like it goes without saying that Francis Ngannou likely left the UFC for monetary reasons, but, but also like we should not forget, like when I went and sat in his house in 2019, he told me that, being the heavyweight boxing champion of the world was his childhood dream, right? And that he grew up idolizing Mike Tyson and that the only reason he went into MMA first was because his coach at the time, Fernand Lopez, told him that it would be easier to break into MMA at the highest level as a relatively unknown guy coming out of France than it would be to get into boxing. And so I- Kind of right about that, yeah. Yeah, no, he was absolutely right about that. Uh, And so I think like we shouldn't underestimate that as a, as a motivating factor. Like, is Francis Ngannou going to win a high-profile, high-level boxing match? Probably not. But, like, if that's his dream, man, and he couldn't do it under his UFC contract, and it's going to pay him more than it would for him to stick around, I don't think you can fault him at all for what he's done. Yeah. So Francis Ngannou has a lot of options. We'll find out what's next for him uh, as we move forward in this thing. What is the best option for the UFC? That is what we will talk about coming up in round number two. First, though, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, ben, I will do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me because it is on this topic. I just have to say, hearken back a little bit to a discussion we had earlier in the show. The MMA reply guys have been out in force this oh, week. Yeah. I had a couple of my tweets get a lot of attention. And frankly, man, it is fucking unbelievable. The nonsense that the MMA reply guys will spew when they don't like one of your tweets. They will say Francis Ngannou is a bum. They will say he's unpromotable. They will say no one cares about him. They will say that Stipe Miocic has been calling him out for a year and that Francis Ngannou wouldn't fight him, which that seems like a strange claim. They will tell you that Francis Ngannou is old. They will tell you that Cyril Gaon is already the number one heavyweight in the world. Just a completely false reality that these guys will construct for themselves so that they don't have to spend even one minute not standing for the UFC. So I would just say that judging by what he said publicly during this process, Francis Ngannou left the UFC for three reasons, right? He left because of the comparatively low pay relative to what he thinks he can make elsewhere. He left because of the restrictive contract that wouldn't let him box. And he left maybe because of Dana White's habit of unpromoting his own fighters. And if you're mad about that, I might suggest that this is a classic don't hate the player, hate the game situation. Or maybe hate the people who spent the last 20 years designing the rules of the game so that those rules benefit them and absolutely no one else. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me is also on a Francis Ngannou-related topic, and I am just going to begin by reading to you a headline from a Nolan King story on MMA Junkie. BKFC will make Francis Ngannou an offer, says promotion president David Feldman. To which I reply, <laughs> A-Y-F-K-M-L-O-L-L-O-L. You fucking kidding me? Are they going to make him the I highest mean, paid heavyweight ever, though? 
you got I guess you gotta say it if you know if you're the BKFC president people ask you gotta say sure we're making him an offer here's the quote we're very interested in signing Francis Ngannou and would very much like to have him compete in the stacked BKFC heavyweight division Feldman said state Sunday in a statement to MMA junkie we're tabling an offer for his services and hopefully fans will see him in the BKFC squared circle in 2023 don't hold your breath <laughs> Also, you're going to have Francis Ngannou come in here and hit somebody with his giant-ass bare fist, turn them into dust before our very eyes, send them to the land of wind and ghosts. And you'd be brought up on charges. You bring Francis Ngannou into a bare-knuckle boxing match. You're fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. That is going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, as the prophecy on the side of T-Mobile Arena hath foretold, John Jones and Cyril Gunn are going to do it up for the, I guess, now vacant UFC heavyweight title. Saturday, March 4th, UFC 285, the main event. John Jones will make his heavyweight debut in a title fight against the guy who was the interim champ, but then got out-wrestled by a one-legged Francis Ngannou. Uh, now, obviously, it seems like we're hoping the, that the excitement about John Jones at heavyweight is going to take a little bit of the sting off of Francis Ngannou walking away with the belt and presumably dropping it in a trash can and his first media appearance with whoever he signs with next. What do you make of the actual matchup here, John Jones versus Cyril Gunn, and what do you make about the ability to stand there, look people in the eyes, put ten toes in the ground, and say this is for the UFC heavyweight title? The winner is the baddest man on the planet, the UFC heavyweight champ. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, we do have to note that it is hilarious that this fight broke, and indeed that perhaps led to the UFC having to admit that Francis Ngannou had walked out on them on Saturday night because someone accidentally put it on the giant reader board outside T-Mobile Arena before it was supposed to be public. That is some classic combat sports shit, man. I don't know if I even really believe that shit, though. Come on. I mean, I saw somebody noting how when Brock Lesnar returned to the UFC, somebody noticed it on, like, the website the day before with them being like, you notice that you put a Brock Lesnar page back on the website. Is he back? And then the answer was, no, no, no. We're just doing some kind of like alumni stuff, basically. And then had to end up admitting like, no, he's back. Like, it seems weird to think like the when it comes to putting some shit up on the side of an arena, you have fewer checks and, and fail safe stuff than the people who have something in drafts for a fucking WordPress site. And can make sure that they don't publish it early. Yeah. You know, that seems like a big thing to fuck up. I will also say shout out to the big homie Aaron Bronstetter for using his status as an MGM Grand Rewards member uh, to call up the hotel and be like, can someone go outside and see if this is real? To see if it is photoshopped. I was like, I was watching on Twitter, and when he put that tweet up, I was like, damn, I wouldn't even ever have thought of that. That is some that is some resourceful reporting by Aaron Bronstetter. 
Absolutely. And you know what? That that rewards membership should come with some kind of perks. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a good way to use them. Uh, you asked me about the actual fight. So we will get into that. It is a big matchup, man. Like it's uh, potentially kind of historic endeavor with John Jones finally making his debut at heavyweight. It obviously is cast in a bit of a shadow because Francis Ngannou isn't going to be there anymore. You can't say with a straight face that it's for the undisputed UFC heavyweight championship because that championship say it. is disputed as fuck right now and doesn't seem to be uh, that it will be any less disputed anytime soon. Uh, I hope that I'm wrong about this, man, but I kind of suspect that this could be a boring fight. Like, I kind of suspect that Cyril Gaon could do the Cyril Gaon thing where he floats around the outside and, like, touches John Jones with a thousand jabs. And I kind of suspect, just judging by what we saw from John Jones in his last two light heavyweight fights against Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos, that he might kind of not know what to do with a guy that he doesn't enjoy uh, a, a protracted physical advantage over that he might kind of desperately want to to close the distance, but not really be able to commit to anything of uh, of note. So, like, I kind of I know everybody's kind of really excited for this, and like they think it's going to be a good fight. But I'm sort of like, I don't know, man. I could see this being five rounds of two guys kind of circling around each other, not doing very much. Now, we will say in this fight's favor. Cyril Gaon did not look great in the defensive wrestling game against a one-legged non-wrestler in Francis Ngannou. So if you want to put a little bit of money down on John Jones, thinking he'll be go be able to go out there and put him on his back and win this thing, I couldn't talk you out of it, and I wouldn't even try because that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, right now, by the way, uh, I'd heard something or saw a headline that said that John Jones opened as a slight underdog here, but right now the odds I'm looking at, kind of across the board, are like. Minus 110 for both guys, minus 105, uh, minus 115, like pretty even. Yeah. Pretty much. And, and uh, like sort of a pick them with the odds makers kind of giving you basically coin flip odds. Yeah. And I, I, I get that. There are a lot of variables to consider in this one. And you saying that you could foresee a, a boring fight out of it. I, I could... I could see how it could possibly go that way. Because you're right that on one hand, you would look at you and be like, John Jones ought to be able to wrestle a guy like Cyril Gaon. But then, at least when last we saw him, which feels like a lifetime ago, when he had to try to wrestle a guy who was, at least in terms of size, kind of his equal, it didn't go that great for him. He did not dominate those people the way he used to dominate people in the wrestling game. Um, now, Cyril Gaon, I was seems like a, a pretty glaring weakness there that was you're right like really really highlighted and granted you know a year ago basically so he's had some time to work on it but that's uh, you know you there's only so much you can get done in the wrestling game in that time but also the other variable that's really hard to predict is that John Jones just hasn't fought in so long yeah it's been like 3 years since yeah. John Jones has fought and not at heavyweight we don't know exactly, like, we saw him before, right? When, remember when he fought Owen St. Preux and he had done a bunch of powerlifting and seemed like he had bulked up and you could hear in his corner them talking about that it was a mistake because they felt like it was not lending itself to a, a good athletic performance from John Jones. And so now he had to bulk up and took a lot of time to bulk up to heavyweight, but we don't exactly know what that will be like, Yeah. what, what physically he'll be able to do and how 
several years off might have affected the man. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't think we can say for sure at all what we'll see from him. Like he looks absolutely massive in the most recent pictures that we have seen of the guy. It seems like he successfully uh, packed on a lot of muscle. But as Joe Rogan has told us since the beginning of time, it takes a lot of oxygen to run all those muscles. And so we don't know how that weight gain will affect him, as you noted. I think by the time he gets in the cage to fight Cyril Gaon, he will be, have been out for more than three years. Uh, he will also be a few months shy of his 36th birthday, which for dudes on my Twitter timeline to tell me that Francis Ngannou is old and washed up and he is 10 months older than John Jones, like hearty fucking har to you guys. Uh, but I, yeah, it's like John, John Jones is a complete unknown. And like I said, if you judge... By the last couple times we saw him against Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos, like I don't know that you can be that bullish on how he's going to look. Now, I think it would be awesome if John Jones is able to have a meaningful, maybe even historic run at heavyweight. I would think it would be in everyone's best interests if John Jones were able to do for the heavyweight division what he was able to do in the light heavyweight division, you know, a decade ago or so. But like, you can't. I don't think you can say with any confidence at all exactly what john jones will be able to do out there and if like are are we hoping like is is what we're hoping for for john jones is that like that he was just bored at light heavyweight and that moving to heavyweight will light a fire under him because like maybe that will happen but doesn't that doesn't that hope also seem sort of fanciful? Like, isn't that a fairy tale that we tell ourselves at fans that like, oh, at, like now that he's up at heavyweight, you're going to see motivated John Jones. And it's going to be a whole new deal. Like, is it though? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. You're right that it is kind of a, a story we're telling ourselves to be like the reason some of these last title defenses from John Jones were kind of lackluster is because he just could not get excited enough about fighting these men in a cage. They didn't present enough of a threat uh, to, to scare him into really doing a great job. I don't know. It, the thing that to me is the, the way a harder thing to predict is three years off is a long time for anybody to, to come back from. But also that's three years of, as you point out, sitting around getting older. And John Jones was kind of a wonder kid. And we have seen... History tells us that sometimes you start earlier, you peak earlier, and you sort of fade earlier. Now, at the at heavyweight, typically 35, 36 years old is still just right there in your prime. You still got several more years of, of slow decline to go uh, before it stops being fun. So, who knows? But somebody like Cyril Ghosn, where he definitely has a strategy that he has learned of how he wants to go about some of these fights, and it's fighting you from a great distance where he can still touch you. And John Jones, we haven't really seen him have to deal with anybody like that. And so if you get in a situation where you can't just physically impose your will on somebody, you can't just bully them around, then what? Yeah. And that's the part I don't know. Yeah. Oh, and Cyril, at this point, we can comfortably say Cyril Gaon is the guy the UFC calls when they don't want something to be as fun as it otherwise should be, right? Like, when they want to suck the fun out of something, call Cyril Gaon. You want Francis Ngannou to lose his title before he leaves the UFC? Call Cyril Gaon. You got tied to Ivasa out here on a fun heavyweight title win streak that everybody seems to like? Have him fight Cyril Gaon. 
See, oh, that's now- what it is. You will never forgive the UFC <laughs> for ruining the prophecy by matching Tai Tuivasa uh, up against Cyril Gunn. Now you got we all we've all been waiting years from Jeff for John Jones's heavyweight debut. It's gonna be so awesome. Call Cyril Gunn. We'll see. <laughs> all right, that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, by Sean Strickland's own admission, he knew Mick Maynard was calling him on the phone to ask him to do something he didn't want to do. Sean Strickland said he was getting together his plans to go snowboarding during his vacation after just appearing for the UFC less than a month ago uh, in his unanimous decision, or I'm sorry, split decision loss to Jared Cannonier back on December 17th. Uh, but he couldn't pass up this opportunity, we guess, to go out there and fight Nasardine Imavov uh, in what turned out to be a short-notice light heavyweight fight. And I guess you got to give Sean Strickland credit because this is about as good as we've seen him look in a while. He went out there uh, aggressively looking like a guy who was pissed off or a guy who needed to impose his will because maybe he knew he wasn't in the best shape. Uh, very aggressively taking it to... Nasardim Imavov for 25 full minutes didn't really seem to fade uh, and just like took this fight from him, man. Just like just flat won this fight, which for a guy who took it just a few days out, uh, you got to give him credit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, When you're watching this fight, if you didn't know which one of them took it a few days out and you were just trying to see who looks like they're fading more, who looks like they're having a little bit more harder time as we get into the later rounds, I don't know if you would have been able to guess that it was Sean Strickland. Yeah. Because, you know, he said something where he was worried about his cardio coming into this fight. You can understand why, Um, especially since a lot of his strategy seemed to be right away putting that pressure on, just staying in this guy's face, never giving him a second to breathe, never letting him... Uh, have a uh, his choice of pace for this fight and that's gonna that's kind of a tough strategy to implement if you came off the couch and were thinking about your snowboarding trip this weekend man yeah yeah that's a lot to do yeah uh i also want to say a few words about how much this situation must have stunk for nasardine imavov like you think you're going to fight kelvin gastelum in a middleweight fight uh and then he gets his mouth all busted up they pull him out and put Sean Strickland in on short notice. All of a sudden, you're fighting at light heavyweight. Nasruddin Imavov weighed in at 194. Sean Strickland weighed in at 204 pounds. So you had, you know, a 10-pound weight advantage maybe, unless Imavov was already into his weight cut and was going to gain some weight before the fight. And also, you know, you and I both put sizable bets down on Imavov last week during our uh, betting segment on Uh, the power hour. And I think one of the things that I underestimated about this matchup was going to be how difficult it was for Nasruddin Imavov to prepare for what is kind of an awkward uh, fighting style from Sean Strickland, because it seemed like Strickland came out more aggressive than I think they probably expected him to be, because that's not necessarily usually his calling card. But it also seemed like the timing was just weird for Imavov to try to uh, slip those punches 
from Sean Strickland because a lot of times Strickland was kind of catching him at the end of these combos where he throws like kind of an oddly timed final punch. And so like, I don't know if I'm Nasruddin Imovov and the UFC at first had me set up for this fight against Kelvin Gastelum, which seemed like it was tailor made to be a showcase fight for me and to boost me up the 185 pound rankings. Uh, this change of opponent was kind of shitty. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, and shitty in, in several different ways because you feel like, okay, the upside of winning this one, you know, if you did go out there and you win it, people, you know, people are just going to be like, okay, you beat the guy who came off the couch. And then you go out there, you have to fight a different kind of fight against this dude and you lose it and people go, okay, well, you weren't ever going to be anything anyway then if that dude could come in here on a few days notice and beat you. Um, and the only thing that I guess would have been shittier was spending your money on a training camp and not getting the fight at all. And that's how you end up in that situation to begin with. Yeah. Um, but you're right though, that like it's Sean Strickland's style seems like kind of a difficult one, especially the style he employed in this fight to deal with on short notice, uh, where, he was a little bit more in your face and a little bit more stronger pressure game than what we've seen in him sometimes. And also I know the, the commentators made a good point earlier about just how close Sean Strickland wants to be to you. And so as soon as you, know, you guys have an exchange, you're getting out of the way, you're trying to reset and he's already right back there and, and right back pushing for it. And it seemed like at least part of that was motivated by him feeling like he got a raw deal in the, the judge uh, the judge's decision against Jared Cannonier. And so he was just going to try to show them that he is the one coming forward, being more aggressive. Um, and honestly, like that'll work on MMA judges. A lot of the times in close fights. Yeah. Like I associate Sean Strickland most of the time with being kind of a frustrating fighter to watch. And a lot of that comes from the part that he chooses to play outside the cage where he talks like he's this crazy psychopath who can't wait to murder someone. And then he gets in the cage, and a lot of times it seems like there's a lot of defensive inactivity out there. And so, like, I thought this was one of the more impressive and pleasing performances by Sean Strickland to see him suddenly, like, find that extra gear to come forward and take this fight away from Nasruddin Imavov. So more power to him uh, for that. It does, perhaps, for matchmakers now, create a bit of a problem in the middleweight division. We talked last week how if you look at the top of the 185 top 15, you see a lot of recognizable faces, a lot of no names, a lot of guys that have already had a crack at fighting a champion, even if it's not Alex Pereira. Uh, but a lot of guys where you look at them and you think, hmm, we might have seen the best from that guy already. And it would have been interesting to have a young new blood fighter like Nasruddin Imavov kind of boost up the rankings to become one of those top 10 guys. But at this point, you got a roadblock in the form of Sean Strickland. And Sean Strickland, prior to his fight against Jared Cannonier, got knocked unconscious by the current champion, Alex Pereira. So it doesn't seem like Sean Strickland is going to be a immediate title contender either. So it seems like the outcome of this fight uh, perhaps prolonged some stasis, I guess, in that middleweight top 15. Yeah. And Kelvin Gastelum looks at this one and just goes, God damn it. <laughs> That is true. Nobody, I could have done that. I nope. could have won that fight. Nobody needs a win more than Kelvin Gastelum. So we'll just have to see where he goes from here as well. All right. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. What is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I'm scrolling through my MMA news aggregator. Just looking, seeing what's in the news. What are we talking about in the old MMA world here today? And then I see a headline 
from BJPenn.com that just says, Former UFC fighter Mike Perry shares his thoughts on Dana White slapping his wife. And I guess this week I'm just saying, nope. (laughs) I don't even know what his thoughts are. I still don't know because I'm not clicking it. I'm just not doing it. There's no reason I need to know what Mike Perry's thoughts are on this particular issue. Might surprise me. You know, who knows? But I'm just saying, uh, here's a headline where I saw it and I thought, I don't, there's nothing about this that I need. Yeah. Nothing about this that I want. Yeah. Just absolutely not. Good day, sir. Just saying. Is that a, uh, is that a scheduled post? I wonder, or is that like a, (laughs) is that a jailhouse interview with Mike Perry? Like, I don't know. We're just, you know, Mike Perry has thoughts that he wants to share on Dana White's happiness. Nope. Yeah. No, thank you. Well, Ben, this week, you know, this isn't going to come as a news flash to people who have followed the sport for a long time, but you ever notice how the UFC never says a number? They always speak in these vague, totally unverifiable claims like, oh, we offered to make this guy the highest paid heavyweight in the history of the company, whatever Turned that means. Yeah. This guy doesn't want to fight. This guy doesn't want to compete at this level. But they never, ever say an actual number. Never. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the UFC fought for years to keep everything about its financial situation a secret. Like absolutely fought tooth and nail to keep its financial situation secret until through discovery during the current class action lawsuit against it and the leak of some documents while the Fertitta brothers were trying to sell the company. At this point, now we know most of the relevant financial information about the UFC shout out by the way to a guy like John Nash who has for years worked hard to paint a clearer picture of the financial information of the UFC but still even today they never say a number we know Shane Burgos was able to go get a better deal elsewhere we know people like Chris Cyborg were able to get better deals elsewhere. We know Brendan Lochnane got passed over for a contender series contract and then went and made a million dollars in the PFL. A million. There's a number. Even if it yep. means that he made that much over the lifetime of the PFL tournament, still a number. If you win the Bellator Grand Prix, you get a million. That's a number. But the UFC, no numbers. They never say a number. And for years... They told us it was to protect fighter privacy, which Mm -hmm. once again, LOL. Uh, So this week, I guess I'm just saying, if you really think about it, there's only one reason why the UFC would never tell us the real numbers, isn't there? And I think if we all think real hard about it, we might be able to figure out the reason why. I'm just saying. Just Just saying. saying. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Remember, we'll be over at Patreon all week. Wednesday's live chat. Thursday, doing the damn thing. Friday, power hour. Check us out over there. We'd love to have you join the team. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. So just so we're on the same page, the the reason they don't say the number is because they don't want to make fighters uh, victims of kidnapping. I mean, that's basically what they have said, right? They're like, they're like, oh, the fighters don't want you to know how much money they're making. Really? Because-
because if there's somebody new, then the next thing you know, they're throwing a bag over Francis and Ghana's head and pushing them in the back of a van. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure that would happen. It's it's amazing, like, how much of this stuff we have been coached to you think is normal. Right? It's like, oh, it's normal that they'll never tell us how much they offer to pay a guy or how much they're paying a guy. It's not the case in almost any other sport. Any other sport, you're making millions of dollars, we know about it. But the UFC never says a number. It's just going to be like, we offered to pay the guy more than we paid Lesnar eight years ago. So, I don't know. He didn't want it. You're saying they're not coming up about Lamar Jackson being like, we, we made him a contract offer. It's a lot. Don't even worry about it. It's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. More than we paid a quarterback in 2016.